one of the things that I found fascinating about uh, your work and uh, an interview I'd heard of you was um, you said you have to be really comfortable with conflict to engage in uh, the, the kind of work you do uh, as, as a mediator. Um, and then you'd also shared um, like your background um, as a civil rights activist where perhaps intellectually uh, you classify yourself as someone who uh, avoided conflict. And then in your book, you mentioned emotionally, at least, you know, uh, at least in your early years, you were um, avoidant of conflict. Uh, and then, of course, you have a deeper dive into like engagement and avoidance uh, and how that plays out in, in, in um, mediation. Uh, we'll love to assess, maybe if you could share a little bit of your early journey and sure. how you became more comfortable with conflict. Well, I would maybe start by saying becoming more comfortable. I, I, wouldn't, I don't think we're, any of us are always comfortable with conflict. I think if conflict's difficult, uh, and sometimes we respond to our discomfort with conflict by becoming more conflictual, and sometimes we be respond to it by becoming more avoidant. Uh, sometimes we respond to it by rushing to solutions rather than really delving into what's really going on. But I think it's a long-term issue for all of us to deal with the conflicts in our lives in a, in a constructive way. I once told a friend of mine that I thought I was a conflict avoider, one of my oldest friends, and he said, well, you may be a conflict avoider, but you're very bad at it. <laughs> I always thought, well, that captures something, yeah, um, which is that, um, you know, I often avoid, avoid, and when I finally decide I have to bring it up, I, I, I'm, it's clumsy to do so. But the journey I think I took was that I was a child of the 60s. Um, I was a, one of the earliest of the baby boomers and I, uh, I started college in 64, graduated 68, went to Columbia University after that in, in the middle of all the sorts of stuff that was happening there. I was in the middle of a lot of stuff with the student movement and with the civil rights movement. I've been an activist both in the North and the South in civil rights the anti-war movement. And um, so I, I definitely was willing to be on one side of a conflict uh, in that sense, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're comfortable with conflict. I mean, in some ways it's very easy to you know, be demanding and um, for, for change and being very positional. It's not the same as engaging in a constructive two-way process of trying to work through conflict. Um, and, but then, for a, for a variety of reasons, I also uh, got trained in psychotherapy and uh, as a social worker and a, a psychiatric social worker. And I worked with children and families as a couples counselor in residential treatment, which I'd had a background in previously. Um, and um, so that, you know, that brought me into a, another angle on, um, uh, on understanding conflict because a lot of what you're dealing with in, when, you're, when you're working as a, in mental health and in psychotherapy and in social work is people who don't handle conflict very well in their lives or whose, con or, or whose lives have been troubled by extreme conflict that has overwhelmed them. And so that also got me looking at it in a different kind of way. And then 
through political activities, really, through anti-nuclear activities, I got connected to a, a, a guy, Christopher Moore, who uh, was teaching nonviolence approaches to social change, and I got very interested in that, and we did some training together on nonviolence for activists, and then on conflict resolution for activists, and then he got interested in mediation, and I followed right along behind him, and um, then together with a couple other people, we formed a, a, a group in Colorado called CDR Associates, which um, continues to this day, but where I worked for 30 years as a partner, which dealt with mediation and other kinds of conflict intervention and training and all over the world, really. Um, so in the process, I got uh, a sense that I knew how to raise conflict and I was beginning to learn how to uh, maybe deal with it once it was raised more effectively. And, you know, gradually through a process of time, if you're going to do it at work, you also do it in your personal life, sometimes better, sometimes others, not so well. And so I think, uh, and I, I still wouldn't call myself comfortable with conflict, but I would say that I am uh, better at dealing with it than I used to be. There's a, uh, uh different personality systems one of them is is the big five uh and i bring it up because one of the traits is like agreeableness which is how um uh which i think is a proxy for how conflict avoidant or uh, comfortable you are in engaging conflict do you feel like this is something that is wired in people um, or is it something that's part of their personality that develops, you know, when they're um, young children or adolescents? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, they're, and wired makes it sound almost like it's on a cellular level or something. I mean, we're born into a family structure uh, and that puts us in different roles. Um, but we're also born with different levels of emotion, you know, emotional expressiveness and uh, different levels of uh, tolerance for different kinds of uh, pain or outside inputs that have, have something to do with it too. But I, I don't think it's very useful to think too much about this as something we're born with. We're not going to change what we're born with, but we can certainly change what we do with what we're born with. And, um, and we can certainly become aware of some of the messages we grew up with from our socialization and our family narratives and our communi the, uh, the community, the struggles of the community we're part of. So, um, for example, um, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors and my and the grandchild of holocaust victims and um so there was a uh, a certain a number of things and messages in my upbringing about that uh, one of which was from one side of my family my mother's saying look we've had enough trouble in our lives can't you keep give us peace now and the other more from my father's side I mean, which was Never again, you know, I'm going to tell the story and we're not going to put up with this kind of stuff. And, you know, so there were different messages that uh, affected me. And I think anybody, you, everybody has their story of the messages they got for whatever reason. Uh, 
you also spent um, a lot of time in communes or cooperatives. Um, I've spent a little bit of time myself, not as much as you, obviously. Um, and I'm curious how it's shaped your ideas on conflict and how people um, want to be independent, but also rely on each other in this interconnected system. Yeah, well, um, I spent a lot of my time in somewhat unusual communities, um, I would say. Uh, my father was a director of a residential treatment center for children, and our house was on the grounds of that. And that's how I grew up, which was an interesting community in and of itself. Um, and then I was in cooperatives in college, and then I lived uh, for almost 30 years at what we call the Juniper Street Collective in Colorado that ranged, and, I, and there was another place I lived in before that, that was arranged from kind of a, somewhere in between an extended family system and a cooperative living arrangement. Uh, and, and then I worked at, I mentioned CDR Associates. We, we were at work as a consensus, a partnership by consensus decision-making for the entire time that we did it. So, and now I live in a small community in Canada, which has been very important, the community, uh, in supporting us as we've gone through some stuff medically. But um, I think, you know, how to, the problem with knowing how to if influence me is, I don't know the counterfactual um, as to what I would have been like without that as my experience. But what I do think is that we all live in communities and there is a fundamental struggle we go through uh, in life and the nature of the communities we've lived in um, defines the specifics of that struggle, which is how do we both uh, connect and separate? How do we uh, form attachments and individuate? And you can find uh, this message in developmental psychology. You can find it in evolutionary theory and developments. There's always this thing to how do we, how do we be uh, unto ourselves as uh, have integrity with ourselves, take care of our needs, uh, and yet also how do we connect to others? Um, and I think being in a community and living in intentional communities, that, that issue was much more on the forefront than it might have other been, been. It was much more on the surface. It wasn't as sub rosa. You were always trying to work out boundaries around living space and child rearing and owner, what you own collectively and what you own separately. Um, and, and you know, how much you wanted to share what was going on in your lives, how much you wanted to have separation from it. And I, I don't think in, in, on one level, I think that we all have to figure that out, but being in a community made it very much a conscious process. And how do you feel about consensus decision-making? <laughs> um, sometimes it's a big pain in the neck, but I also think it is probably the baseline way in which we should be making decisions in groups. But a good consensus decision-making process also needs to have sort of a triage, which is you can't make every single decision by consensus, nor do you need to. 
Um, some decisions you, you can just delegate and some decisions you need uh, somebody with a certain amount of authority over a certain area. Um, for example, um, if you, one that I think about in, often in the, when this comes to mind is what it was like to garden in a community. And, you know, we, uh, after a, a certain number of years of having a garden where we were always discussing what to grow and what was the right amount of water and who was doing enough work and how many rocks you should have in the garden and how many were not okay and you name it. I one day said, all right, I'm going to do the garden. And I'm, 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 I'm very happy to have whatever help anybody wants to give me. But what you're not allowed to do is criticize me for how I'm doing it. And it made it so much easier after that, even though I was by far, in a way, not the best gardener in the group. But in, in a trivial sort of way, that's an example of you need consensus decisions, I think, are, are essential for teams and for families and for, um, for workplaces, uh, for neighborhoods, for making the most important decisions. Um, but you do have to, you know, if, if everything has to be a consensus thing, you'll quickly get tired of it. And it's easy then to retreat from the process rather than engage. Yeah. One of the things I see in more of a corporate setting is sometimes decision making by consensus can uh, stop innovation uh, because a consensus, you know, anyone with the right to say no can, can veto something that might be different than what they're used to. Um, and sometimes uh, without pass, passing a value judgment um, on this, uh, a more authoritarian structure or individual can push things that are more innovative, yet uh, unfortunately they're not, they don't, come about through consensus decision-making. Yeah, I, I understand that. That's, again, the community and autonomy thing. Yeah. There has to be, there's tension between it. There's tension between, because teams are very powerful. And, you know, being able to, in the best spirit of things, being able to bounce your ideas off each other and, and create um, decisions that reflect the best of everybody's thinking is very powerful. But a, a group can also become uh, authoritarian, or it can become its own uh, rigid structure, and that's so there's a need for autonomy as well, and for individuals to be given the space to uh, do their thing. It's the, the strongest, I think, is where you have uh, a well-functioning integration of both approaches. Yeah. Have you ever, in your practice, worked to? maybe disband a group that wasn't yeah. working? And how did that go? Well, I disband, helped disband many marriages. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's one example. Um, you know, there were a number of times where we've been called into organizations and we have looked at uh, conflicts going on there. And one of the things we found is they, the, the group structure, team structure was unwieldy or was, was not working and there needed to be some um, recognition of that an example might be in a university where you know i, I think of one situation where uh, um, three departments had been put together into one and it wasn't working um 
we didn't exactly disband the, the mega department, but we created much more individual, uh, individual autonomy for the different parts of it, uh, as an example. Um, but I've also had to mediate the, you know, the end of business partnerships. Um, and um, separate, split up of law firms, um, because as an example, those are just examples of uh, medical practices because they don't always work. If someone is in, um, let's say, legal partnership and they see, um, and they're going down a road where they don't think it's going to work, what's the best way for them to voluntarily start a discussion on dissolution in a way that leaves everyone feeling empowered at the end? Well, I'm not sure it's a best way, but I think usually it starts with naming it, naming the problem, if, without necessarily naming the solution immediately. Um, so naming the problem might be this isn't working. We need to understand why, where that takes us, um, and um, what to do about it. I mean, maybe it might be also maybe, I'm not sure we should stay in this partnership, but let's talk about it and let's get input. However, here's a caveat. If you know it's not working and you know you can't continue in it, that's part of what you have to name too. In other words, you don't want to pretend you're having a problem-solving session and decision-making session about whether to stay in or not when you're, you know the answer already. It's not like you want to go into therapy sort of to save a marriage when you know what you really want is to end it. I mean, you need to be straight about these, these things. But, the, the, you know, I've, I've often said the, the single things that help us be... Um, most effective in, 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 in difficult conflict situations like that is, is to question our own certainty, to really want to be, own what we feel and believe and think, but you know, maybe we don't, maybe our story isn't the only story. I just read this quote, I can almost find it, uh, I can't remember it exactly, from Ronald Niebuhr that says, we need to um, question a search for the falsehood in our own truth and the truth in other people's falsehoods or something. I, I botched up that quote, but it was something on that order. Um, and it's, you know, right. I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's not a bad way of, of, of putting some of it. It's, uh, it, it is important to be both clear and, and, and comfortable with how we feel and our stories and what we believe, but, but open to the fact that we may not have the whole picture or we may be wrong about some parts and to be genuinely curious about what other people have to say. Now, it's easier said than done under circumstances of stress. And there are circumstances where you just need to end it, like in an abusive relationship. Now, you don't, you know, if, if you're in an abusive relationship or a dangerous relationship, get the hell out and you don't have to try to do all of that. But, you know, but assuming it's been a, a, a partnership of some kind that you really have tried to work on and you have some 
kind of feeling that you want to end it in the best way possible, then I think you name the problem, you state it as clearly as possible as you see it, but you be open to what other people have to say and you go from there. And what other people might have to say is screw you, get the hell out of my face. Okay. I'm imagining a situation like that. I think one of the things that I am, might struggle with and probably a lot of people is to sit with that uncertainty like you have your truth that might have some holes in it. You're waiting to hear the other person's perspective. And then maybe there's a separation. Maybe there is like a reworking, maybe there's a dialogue, but I imagine the individual has to sit under a lot of uncertainty. Um, how have you, or how have you helped people sit with uncertainty? About what to do? Mm-hmm. Or even just not knowing, right? Like, what the resolution is. Yeah. Well, I can't give them the certainty that they don't have, Uh, but we can have them, we can have people have the conversation either with themselves or with each other about what are the different sides of the uncertainty? You know, what's going on, you know? Because, you know, big decisions in our lives we're almost always uncertain about. Uh, because otherwise there wouldn't be big, big decisions. They would just be something we were going to do. But, um, you know, leaving a, leaving a job, you've been, I moved from 30 years at CDR Associates to be in, a, in an academic position um, as a professor of conflict studies. Um, and, and I always, I always say, have said, and I retired from that about six months ago, or eight months ago, I always said that... Um, I made that move when I couldn't stand the words billable hours anymore. Um, but in a way that's true, but I, yeah, I, I was very devoted to the organization and I, it meant a lot to me. I spent a good part of my time there. Um, and on some level I knew it was better for the organization and better for me to move on, but it was a big sacrifice in other ways. Sacrifice is a wrong word. It was a, it was a you know, there was a lot I was losing. Um, as well, and I, you know, I think, I mean, I talked it through up one side and down the other, and you know, drove my wife a little crazy about it. But in the end, you know, it was clear what I needed to do. But I, 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 I think the danger we often face in circumstances like that is that we do not like uncertainty, we do not like cognitive dissonance. We do not realize in order to understand that we often have to face our own weaknesses as well as our own strengths. And uh, therefore we rush to certainty. We either avoid making any decision at all or we rush to certainty. And I think, I think we, we, we need to, as I say, embrace the uncertainty without letting that paralyze us. I mean, I think some of the most interesting things I've learned as a manager, and was managing partner of our organization for a while, but I've been, been in other roles as a manager too, was that you know, a lot of times you have to make decisions, not by consensus, because that's not what the structure allows or calls for, you just have to make decisions. And you don't know what the right thing is. You just have to do the best you can. I mean, an example that I, but it doesn't mean you don't make a decision. But that also doesn't mean you don't have, you pretend you're more certain than you are. So to give a, an example, I, 
at points in my past, I would occasionally have to make decisions about whether it was um, all right for a child to go back to a family where it may have been, uh, or a parent where they may have been unsafe at some point for a variety of reasons, let's say substance abuse or something. And um, those are pretty important decisions. Um, and it's hard to, and there's, you know, there's no algorithm that tells you what the right thing to do is. It's a very uh, difficult one. If we always take the safest road, there's an irony here. If you always take the safest road and don't allow a child to go with a parent that there's any concern about whatsoever, then you're also asking the child to take what might be the most harmful road sometimes. On the other hand, there are some times you absolutely say, no, this isn't okay. In neither circumstance can you, could, you, could I be in those years totally 100% sure? Well, sometimes I was, but the hard ones were when I wasn't totally 100% sure. And I still had to make a decision. And so I kind of had to make the decision as if I was certain, but still to try to be aware of the fact that that's just what I was doing. What was your decision-making process in that example? Well, there were a number of examples, but, um, you know, I, I weighed the risk factors. There were certain objective things I looked at. Um, I weighed what kind of safety mechanisms we were able to put into place, monitoring, so forth. Um, and um, also weighed what the alternative was. And then talk with the kids, talk with the families, talk with coworkers who had a sense of it. You know, I didn't try to do it all alone. Um, and that's how we did it. This is a long time ago. It's just a, it's at least 40 years ago. So then I was in that role frequently, but it just popped into my mind. Yeah, but I mean, we do this with our own kids all the time. I think we make decisions that we have to make and we do it without giving the kid the space to sometimes challenge us that maybe we should. Um, but that doesn't always mean we know for sure we're right. I mean, I, I think part of the art of parenting is knowing when to let go of that, not doing it when they're too young, but not holding on too long either. Did you ever, I guess parenting, you get to see the, the follow-ups of your decisions. Uh, in some of your um, professional work, did you get to see uh, like after the fact that you made the right decision and perhaps could you change it after the fact if you felt like you didn't? Sometimes, I mean, um, some, sometimes I uh, um, built, we built in let's ch a check-in kind of thing or a monitoring sort of provision for certain uh, circumstances. Sometimes I had very long-term relationships with people who we were working with. I, I worked for many years, for example, with a, a group of people in, you know, in, in Bulgaria after the fall of communism, we were working on ethnic conflict. Um, and um, you know, we worked with them over a period of, I don't know, eight years or something like that. So we, we did get this 
to see that sometimes. Other times, you, you just don't know what happened. You know, I, I, there's a lot of cases I can think back of as a mediator, when I was a, working mostly as a mediator, but also as a therapist even earlier, that uh, I really wonder what happened to those people. I suppose I could Google some now, but somehow I don't think that's the right thing to do, so I don't. <laughs> and there are other cases where I look back at and I say, that didn't work, that was a problem. <laughs> I'll tell you one issue I can, I can somehow talk about because it was public and it was public the whole time. Is there was a while, a number of years back, in, I don't know, 1972, 73, when I did some work in Alaska on wolf management issues. And I co-facilitated with, I mentioned earlier, Chris Moore, what was called the Alaska Wolf Summit. Um, and it, it's in, I've written it up in, couple of my books, I think, but it's a, it was a long and very interesting process. The Wolf Summit itself was just one week, but the lead up and follow up. Um, but you could, you could go to Google today and write in Wolf Management in Alaska, and you would see it's still a controversial issue as it is elsewhere um, as well. Um, so, um, you know, that was just, a, we, our intervention was a, a point in time. It wasn't going to completely deal with it. it. Never thought it would. Trying to get the whole thing wrapped up would have been a mistake. But we could get an effective dialogue going, um, somewhat effective. And, and could, you, could you summarize it for those listening? I've read about it in your book, but if, if this is the first time someone's hearing about it. Um, so, wolves... Um, have uh, are, are pretty free roam on most public lands in Alaska, which is most of Alaska. But on areas that are state run and state controlled and um, uh, um, there was a whole issue of were wolves uh, overpopulated compared to caribou and, and, uh, and moose, wolves and bear, but particularly wolves. And was this, uh, this, was this um, causing the caribou herds to be diminished in size and therefore less uh, available for hunting or trapping or whatever um, um, might be the case. And it, it's a political hot issue in, in, uh, in, in Alaska and elsewhere. Um, and so there was a newly elected governor of Alaska who was elected on the Alaska Independence Party ticket named Wally Hickel, who had for a while been the uh, Richard Nixon's Secretary of Interior until he was fired for not supporting the Vietnam War. But that's a whole other story. Um, and um, he got elected on the, and one of the campaign platforms was he was going to have massive wolf call. Uh, to create, make uh, Alaska a hunter's paradise. And the response to that was to uh, massive from animal rights groups, from environmental groups, from uh, a lot of people on both sides of the issue. And there was a boycott called of Alaska. And so he decided the thing to do was to have everybody with a concern in the issue be invited to a wolf summit uh, in 
Fairbanks, Alaska in January, I think of 1993. Um, there had just been a, Clinton had just gotten elected president. He just had had a big economic summit. So this idea of summits was a, uh, an idea at that point. And um, so they had uh, 150 invited, 250 invited guests, 150 invited observers, and it was open to the public. It was held in a hockey arena, and there were about, I don't know how many, at least 1,500 people present. And about two weeks beforehand, they decided, how are we going to pull this off without people killing each other and making this? So they called us, a variety of steps happened, but they called us and asked us to come up there and facilitate it. And so we quickly tried to organize a process, worked with some local mediators to be small group facilitators. And we did this for a while. It was it was pretty wild, but we actually got some people talking and listening to each other, and some we just wanted to give speeches. Um, and um, after a week, the out the outcome of it was the most significant outcome was nobody killed each other, <laughs> and that uh, people actually could have some pretty interesting cross discussions amongst, across interest groups, across stakeholders groups, but also some of the most interesting discussions were within stakeholders groups on the national and a local level, for example, of environmentalists was really interesting, the, the struggles they had. The local people had much more relationships across some of the boundaries, uh, stakeholder boundaries. So, and, and there were some vague principles agreed to, some vague, some a little less vague, that kind of guided future discussions. Uh, I think the, the uh, Alaska did back off its massive wolf cull plans. Um, and, uh, so that accomplished something from some points of view. Um, and there was a lot of uh, fa data issues about what really, what really was a natural state of health of the, uh, the relationship between the wolves and the herds that we had to deal with as well. Yeah, and I also remember um, you had a dialogue in, in your book about um, like uh, sort of indigenous tribal elders arguing with the environmental activists. Oh yeah, well that was part of that. Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, so there was one smaller group process or open process people could watch, but took, there were smaller group interactions in it. And there was this one very uh, earnest, nice, but very serious animal rights activist from the East Coast who came there and there was a, and they were talking and the tribal elder talked about, you know, their, how they had, they were part of the, their practices of, of culling wolves and doing something called denning and the environmental activist gave a very impassioned speech about the rights of animals and how they were, uh, you know, we couldn't just treat them as objects of our desires or, or whatever their speech was. And the uh, um, elder from the, one moment I remember was the elder from the uh, uh, village, from the uh, first Alaskan village, uh, said, um, don't you respect your elders? And, and, the, and the guy said, um, and, and the uh, young man from the East looked at him saying, well, of course, what does that have to do with it? Well, don't you respect your elders? Look how you're talking about this after what I just said. And it was like a complete 
miscommunication of, of cultures across it. Uh, and, and another one of the, uh, of the uh, uh, First Nations people there said that, um, well, aren't, don't, you know, aren't we part of nature? And again, it was this great, <laughs> it was this great. And so it was really interesting to watch it and watch how they worked it out. And, uh, you know, it, uh, that's what those things are good for. If you can get those kind of conversations to happen without, um, people pulling back or getting nasty, but just really hearing across that difference. I think that was one of the most valuable things that happened. Yeah. And I can give examples of that sort of thing happening in other contexts, but the, the cultural differences were so dramatic there. It was, uh, it was really interesting. Yeah. I guess this also, um, what actually comes to mind is uh, some of the stuff you sent me for your new book, uh, mm -hmm. the chapter you sent, uh, and thank you for, for sending that. Because um, one of the examples you give, um, and I'll let you share a little bit more about your, your, your new book in a second, is you know um, sometimes things that are good in the micro context may not be so good uh, if you think more strategically or globally. So I think one example you give is like uh, at a company, you might collaborate to resolve a conflict, right? Which is, which is good, but you might actually empower a very exploitative hierarchy within that company. So if you take a more um, macro perspective, it may not be good, but if you take a more micro perspective, um, like things seem to be, in a more constructive space. Well, let me try to put that in a slightly different terminology. You're talking about the book that I'm working with my colleague, uh, Jackie Funk Guzman on writing, which is tentatively called The Neutrality Trap from Constructive Engagement to Strategic Disruption and Social Conflict. Um, before, up to now, I think we've been talking about the ideas from the conflict paradox. Um, you know, he, the, after, Trump was elected in 2016. Um, many people, said, particularly liberals, said, you know, we, we just need to hear what all the Trump voters are telling us, uh, that we haven't heard of the sufferings or whatever, which is in and of itself not wrong, but very incomplete. Um, and then after the, uh, the year of polarization in, in the U.S. that happened last year, a lot of all, uh, people also have been saying, you know, we just need to dialogue and to talk to each other across our differences. And after George Floyd was murdered, again, there's all this community polarization. There's this reflexive thing that we need to dialogue, we need to talk. And I think, I never want to be against dialogue or talking to people you disagree with. I think there's a value in that. But I'm not sure that's the essential thing, the first place you start. Because dialogue across power differentials without really doing anything to uh, deal with a power differential, and also uh, dialogue in the situation of a very strong structure that perpetuates racism, might actually not be the first step that's needed. What might be the first steps that need is those systems have to be disrupted at some point in different ways. And um, I think sometimes what we do 
is we right away say, all right, if, if there's a difference, we need to get people talking, rather than if there's a difference, we need to look at the systemic roots of the, some of problems, particularly um, racial problems, problems of misogyny, problems of Islamophobia, xenophobia, um, that are very power-rooted, are very power-based. And um, so that's, that's what I'm talking about, I think. And in, I guess when I was reading some of the, some of the content you sent, um, it seemed to me that there's a value judgment on the bigger system, right? That it's corrupt, uh, racist, uh, sexist, so on. Um, however, not necessarily everyone agrees with that, right? Um, I guess who, who makes that value judgment then? <laughs> well, we each have to make it for ourselves. I mean, I, uh, I can't impose my value judgments on others, um, but we have to be ourselves as we understand um, what we see going on, um, what we believe is the nature of the problem. Now, we don't do that in isolation. We make those judgments in communication with others and talking with others and hopefully listening to a number of different points of view, but we still have to make it. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I told you earlier, I had a background in activism earlier in my life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, there were plenty of people in the South who didn't think segregation was a problem, um, who thought, uh, who had very strong views about the, and still do, about the limited power that uh, African Americans should have, for example. Um, it's not how I saw it. Um, I would be happy to talk to those people, but talking to those people uh, and to share views and not just to treat them all as equal, I think they were, I was right about that and I think they were wrong. Um, but, you know, we also needed to build a movement and the conversations that could happen later on were uh, different than the ones that could happen before doing that. And I think we're facing that right now. There's a real uh, effort in the United States to reimpose incredible obstacles to voting that are fundamentally racist in nature. So that's my judgment. You know, you know I, don't, I don't get to decide that for the country, but it, is, but it does let me think and, uh, and communicate what, what I think is needed, which is again, building a movement to, uh, to uh, counteract that. So the story I often think about is what would have happened in 1956 at the time of the Montgomery bus boycott if after Rosa Parks had refused to sit in the back of the bus, a bunch of mediators were sent down there to resolve the issue. And would that have been a helpful thing? And I think, well, maybe they could have resolved that specific issue, but it would have been a problem. Uh, they might not have been able to, but even if they could, 
um, what really was more important was the more fundamental uh, racist system that that policy was part of needed to be disrupted. So what happened was the boycott was organized, the uh, number of movements developed out of it. Martin Luther King Jr. came to the fore um, as a spokesperson and leader of it. Uh, there were some court cases that were won. And it really it led to the, the burgeoning of a movement. And then after a year or so of that, uh, there was a mediation that ended the boycott uh, done by the, of, of sorts, done by the churches who brought the different players together. So, I mean, I think we all have to, we all have to make judgments about stuff like this. I just think it's really important to be aware of the fact that if our ultimate goal is always just to get people to talk, um, we may be missing something. A, fr a friend of mine once organized a panel at a conference that I was on that was called, if, uh, if, if mediation is our position, what is our interest? And I might expand that to say, if dialogue is our position, what is our interest? And I mean, I think our interest is to build a just, uh, equal, sustainable society um, where people are able to reach their potential. Um, and even if they don't have a whole lot of potential, are supported in reaching their potential, if you know what I mean. So I, I think everybody does have potential, but I, I, I don't, I, I think there's a bottom line, what I'm really trying to say is I think there's a bottom line of, of, um, of benefits that everybody ought to receive in society. Uh, but, but that to me is, is the, is the uh, goals we're, see we're seeking. And um, di dialogue's part of the process, but it, it is part of the process. It's not the be all and end all. And you said you've been working on this book. Um, when do you, I've heard it's not a good idea to ask authors like when it'll be like out, uh, published, but when when can people expect to get their hands on it to start reading it? When it's published, which is probably going to be sometime early in 2022, probably. Okay. Um, I know we have eight minutes left. I I if I would like to change tracks a little bit um, to go back to your old book. Uh, your your your. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Um, but, but there is one thing I did want to go a little deeper on because I thought it was, um, it really changed or broadened my thinking, uh, which is one of the things you said is when you um, help students be more effective and credible uh, in cooperating, they can only do that if they're also effective and credible in competing, right. uh, which I think for me was really impactful because I think I have a bias towards being uh, maybe more collaborative. Uh, and then I think I know people who perhaps have the opposite bias as well, have, that, have a bias to be more, more competitive. Um, and if, if, if the question is, it's not just one or the other, um, I think the thing that came up for me was, okay, how do you compete Honorably. Oh, that's that's great. How do you compete honorably? Um, 
Well, I thought you were going to ask me something different, but let me try to answer that one. I, I think it starts out with you being transparent and authentic. Um, I, I, th I think where competition gets really destructive is when it's, and when it is when it's based on lies um, or or dissembling um, or um, or playing very manipulative games. So, for example, if I'm going to negotiate the price of a used car, um, I don't think it's a First of all, I don't think it makes the outcome any better. But I also think that it doesn't um, improve the overall relationship, which maybe you don't care about in that instance, but it, in many others it does for me to say, you know, I, I'm not willing to go a, do a, a dollar over $10,000 to pay for this car, um, period. When I had in my own hand, my mind, I'm, I'm really willing to pay 12500 So what can I say instead of saying I'm not willing to go a dollar over that? Well, I can say I think a really fair price would be $10,000. Uh, you know, and I would have to have some very good reasoning, reasons to think it would it'd make sense to go more than that. Maybe I'm giving you a bad example, but it is what I'm trying to get at, even in a very distributive negotiation, I think it, it's important that we don't say things that are basically lies, or we don't try to use other sources of power that are um, uh, based on um, uh, attributes we have that uh, we ought not to use for power, like being a male um, or, or being a white guy. You know, I think it's really important that we use the power we have in a constructive, integrative, sustainable way. Um, and that we, we are authentic. Uh, I'm not saying this is so easy. Um, but I will tell you, I don't think there's any reason to think you get a better price by negotiating for a car one way than you do the other. I think sometimes you have to say this negotiation isn't working for me. I'm going to have to take a. I'm going to have to take a break from it now. I'm going to have to check out alternatives. Yeah. Um, but that's different than doing a fake walkout. Yeah. It is, a, is a genuine. Is a genuine saying this isn't working for me right now. I need to take a break or something. Yeah. I guess the competitive act in that case would be to look at other sellers in the market, right, and mm -hmm. then getting a sense yeah. of like what their price range is. And mm -hmm. then, you know, if someone is selling a car for 10,000 or 11,000 with the same attributes, then I guess what I'm hearing is that is more transparent than using a verbal trick. Exactly. I think checking alternatives, playing a genuine alternatives game makes a lot of sense. Finding out what your alternatives are, thinking out what the other person's alternatives are, trying to point out why maybe your alternatives are, strong, are stronger, if they are, um, that, that all is fine. M making false alternatives, like, um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I'm interested in this car, but I'm looking at another car that's actually just as good for a lower price. 
when that's not true. I think that doesn't help in the long run. It's too easy to call your bluff, for one thing. But also, um, it just doesn't set up the kind of relationship that really allows you to problem solve or to, to find a price that uh, you can feel, feel good about. I think if you take a more serious type of negotiation, let's say uh, um, about with, the, with Iran about nuclear weapons, um, it's the same thing. If we're, if we're pretending we're going to do hellfire and damnation, we didn't do much with North Korea when Trump did that. Um, and then he did the opposite. We're just the best of friends. That didn't do much either. I mean, a more genuine recognition of differences and what power we genuinely have and alternatives we gen have and trying to build up our alternatives and stuff and, and build up our power is the sort of stuff that really makes a difference. But it, not if it's, it's phony and false and all about bullying. Yep. There's, a, there's a concept, I think, in the, in the weeds of what we're talking about, which is... Uh, if you go back to the car example, like there is information asymmetry here, right? The, the seller knows some things about the car that the buyer might not, even if they're honest people, right? Like the buyer might have 30 minutes to spend on a car. The seller has had it for weeks and they know these are the things that work about it, these are the things that don't. The buyer has some information asymmetry, like they, have, they might have a bigger budget than they're willing to say on. They might have done more research than the seller. Um, you start off by mentioning that honorable competition has an element of transparency in it, right? Um, where does this play out in, 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 the, in actual sharing of information or information asymmetry uh, when it comes to two parties? I think that we think not sharing information is more powerful than it is often. I mean, a seller knows what, he's, what his manager has told him he's allowed to go, for, go to. A seller knows whether they're near the quota at the end of the month they need to make and where they really want a couple additional sales, you know, versus, uh, you know, at a, at where they've already made the quota and it's all gravy. You know, I, and you know, they might want to say, look, I, I don't really have much room right now because of this. Or, you know, I, I'm, trying, I'm happy to make a deal with you if we can work out a good one. I don't think it makes as much difference as people think. I don't think you have to get the last $25. And, and, although I did once walk away from a, uh, or threatened to, well, I did walk away, but they changed, changed afterwards from a car deal because of $25, but it was because I really felt like they were, I was being jacked around and games were being played on me and I was pissed off. It was a long time ago, but I often think about that. And it was, it was a little of a problem since I was negotiating for a car for my wife, not myself, and she really wanted it. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, um, I don't think, I, you know, so I don't, there's, there's information that I think sharing a little more than you maybe have to um, is actually sometimes more powerful than withholding. But, um, you know, I'm not going to tell them what's in my bank account or what my real true, how desperate I might want to be for a car. I remember going with one of my sons once to buy a car and he, his car had broken down a week before he had to leave town to go off to university. Um, and um, he needed to get another car. Uh, well, we didn't tell him that he had to desperately needed a car within the next few days. I mean, you know, 
On the other hand, saying, you know, it would be really, not, I would be, it would make a big difference to me to be able to see if we can't make a deal today. And if we can't, we can't. But, you know, I, I, I think, I think we make games out of this sort of thing where we can, where we can give at least some general information and search for some general information. Um, I mean, there are exceptions to it. I know there are times where, you know, people desperately want to hide how vulnerable they really are because that's their own only source of strength um, is to pretend they're strong. I'm not trying to be too glib about it, but I, what, but what I don't think we do, it very seldom makes sense, is to lie about about what our alternatives are. Really, it's it, it's it's too easy. Um, it's it, it, there's too many downsides to that, and there's so many upsides about sharing just a little bit and creating a rapport with the person you're dealing with. Great. Uh, I think we're at the hour. Anything you Wish I asked you, but didn't. Well, you know, in, in, not no, but there, I will point out there, you've covered a couple of the paradoxes in paradox, like keep competition and cooperation and community and autonomy. Uh, there, there's I think seven of them in there. Um, I, I would say the one we were just talking about in a way was the whole thing about um, optimism versus realism which is another one. And that um, what I think we were just saying is you need both. I mean, you can't be a genuine optimism. Optimism has to be realistic. And the power of realism is the idea that, you know, we can also do something to make things better. Or at least believe it's worthwhile the effort to try. And so I just want to put what we were talking about in that context a bit. Yeah. Uh, I think you have also in your book, a few great examples of like fake optimism and fake realism, which right. I really enjoyed. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's right. I, I, in general, I don't think fake works very often. In negotiation and conflict and communication and relationships, I think authenticity is much more powerful, especially all the time.